This is Alumni Allowed, a podcast by Graduate Center students for Graduate Center students. In each episode, we talk with a GC graduate about their career path, the ins and outs of their current position, and the career advice they have for students. This series is sponsored by the Graduate Center's Office of Career Planning and Professional Development. I'm Anders Wallace, PhD candidate in the Anthropology program at the Graduate Center. In this episode, I catch up with Lisa Taliaferri, who is a postdoctoral fellow in the MIT Digital Humanities program. Lisa earned her PhD in the Comp Lit program at the GC in 2017, and she spent several years outside academia working as a community manager and developer educator at the cloud computing company DigitalOcean. In this episode, Lisa tells us about the value of tapping into personal interests that can lead you down seemingly divergent paths, but ultimately enrich your academic and professional work, how to bridge education and advocacy through radical mentorship, and the advantages of applying your research skills to exploring the wide world of job opportunities beyond academia. What's your name and what are you currently doing for a living? I'm Lisa Taliaferri. I did my PhD in comparative literature. I defended my dissertation in April 2017. I began working at the cloud computing company DigitalOcean in July 2016. So I started by conceiving of and writing uh, developer tutorials, and then I moved into a manager position in community and developer education. And then I started a postdoc in the digital humanities at MIT in 2018. You went from starting in developer manuals, and is that known as technical writing? There's a big swath of what technical writing is. Yeah, there are things like manuals, But what we really did on the team was more on the developer education side, writing tutorials that would take somebody from top to bottom, creating learning pathways. As part of my role, I worked on a Python ebook that's free and open access, and it was not conceived as a book to begin with. It was basically like my tutorial curriculum, and then we repackaged it as a book. So this was a set of tools or resources for teaching people how to use these software programs. Yeah, so the Python stuff in particular was supposed to take somebody from learning the beginning of like for loops, uh, what is like a variable, through to object-oriented programming. Historically at DigitalOcean, they did more work on cloud-based technology. So basically, how do you set up a server? How do you put Apache or Nginx on your server? And then as time went on and the product became more complex and you know developers had more needs, it would be more about doing containers, so like Docker, doing scaling with Kubernetes and things like that. That's above my pay grade. (laughs) Could you tell me a bit about your academic background? Yeah, so going back, um, I did my undergraduate degree at Hunter College as part of the Macaulay Honors Program. I studied Italian literature and studio art, and I knew while I was there that I was interested in continuing studying literature and languages, so I took a lot of foreign language courses at the time, like as preparation. After undergrad, I decided not to go right into graduate school, and I worked at the United Nations as a copy editor for for the General Assembly and Security Council for a year. While I was doing that, I realized that this maybe was not like the right trajectory for me, and I started a master's 
in comparative literature at Binghamton University. And then from there, I moved to the Graduate Center, attracted to the Italian program that's within comparative literature, um, just because it was such a rich program. And while I was doing that, I taught Italian at York College. I actually took a year away from the Graduate Center and did a master's degree in computer science at the University wow. of London. During your PhD course. Yeah, I took a, well, I took like a break because I was done with coursework um, and then I went and did that because I wanted to explore that interest. Yeah. And then when I came back, I started working with the Futures Initiative here at the Graduate Center. I did web development and network analysis and visualization as part of my fellowship with them. You know, I was always interested in computer science and programming. And I also have a background in making websites and doing JavaScript, dating back to like middle school, probably. Oh, wow. So So you had been somewhat self-taught in computer science. yeah. Yeah. So I wanted to formalize that. I started to get interested in the digital humanities, and it was actually Callie Davidson with the Futures Initiative who really encouraged me to bring that into my humanities research in mm-hmm. a more obvious way instead of doing like traditional humanities and doing like mm-hmm. programming on the side to really wed those. So I really appreciated her perspective there. I taught computer science at St. Thomas Aquinas College, which is a college in Rockland County. So I started to get like exposed to like different disciplines Uh, with the Futures Initiative. I learned a lot more about alt-act careers and towards the end of my fellowship, I started applying to different jobs as an ABD. I mostly applied to alt-act jobs like digital humanities or digital pedagogy focused, Mm -hmm. but I also applied to DigitalOcean and it was interesting how I found out about DigitalOcean because it was through my own dissertation research. Mm. So they participate in this program called the GitHub Student Developer Pack, which is an offering that GitHub puts together that gives students access to different tools. One of those offerings was a DigitalOcean $50 credit. DigitalOcean provides servers. I'm like, cool, I could use a server to put my dissertation research online. That's cool. I could put everything on the web. But the thing was that DigitalOcean at the time did not have any kind of managed service. It was just like a server. So I didn't have experience in system administration. All my experience was like more on the developer side without the infrastructure. Mm, more like front end. Well, just nothing that's interacting with the server directly. Gotcha. So what happened was I read a tutorial that was written by somebody who became my colleague later. And, you know, I was like, wow, this is such like an interesting piece of writing. Mm. Um, and it taught me how to set up my server. I made a server to serve like a static website. I put all my stuff on there and I'm like, cool. So they were on my radar after that. As I mentioned, most of what they did was more on sysadmin, Linux, and DevOps engineering. So it wasn't really my wheelhouse but eventually i saw a job posting for an engineering technical writer that focused on python so then i was like oh this is something that's really interesting and you had learned python already Mm -hmm. what was your dissertation about your topic my dissertation was on catherine of siena who's a 14th century mystic writer a lot of the work is traditional archival research i went to visit a lot of archives looked at manuscripts and early printed books but the digital components were around doing 
network analysis. She was really good at building a network and also textual analysis. So looking at her writing in comparison to canonical authors. So the project was to recover her as a writer, part of the broader humanities project of recovering marginalized authors, Mm -hmm. comparing her work to Dante and Pritchard's work and seeing how she was able to be a successful writer and mystical person by building her network. That's super interesting. Do you feel like it was challenging in the comp lit department to do work for your dissertation that had a digital component? I didn't feel like there were any blockers. I think that there's probably opportunities for humanities programs to offer more technical support to people who want to go down this road because you know, my dissertation, the writing and like the humanistic rigor was really taken to task by my committee. And I'm grateful for all of that attention. But I think I could have, you know, been supported in terms of like the technical side mm-hmm. a little bit. Like, so there's, there was no code review. There's no like, is yeah. this the best like tech that I could have done? I mean, I'm not sure where something like that would live, but I think that there is a need for that. Do you feel like there's an interest that ties together your passion for comp lit and also your interest in coding languages? Yeah, so I've thought about this a lot, and actually it was through a discussion with one of my colleagues at the Futures Initiative, uh, Danica Savanik, who is a assistant professor at SUNY Cortland now. In doing collaboration with her and talking to her about the things that are really important to me, around access, who gets a say in certain things. I see a big thread within the vernacular period of Italy, so 14th century when the vernacular was coming into fruition and open source code and the internet today. So basically thinking about people who were innovating in that time period, right? They're doing things like writing and circulating text, making texts available for wider audiences. Boccaccio says rather tongue-in-cheekly during the Decameron in the beginning that he is writing this in Italian so that the ladies can understand. And like, (laughs) you know, it's kind of a joke, but he's actually correct. Tons of people did not have access to those resources. The people who were in positions of power and privilege were doing everything in Latin so people could not understand or be producers of knowledge in those contexts. So once you start to circulate text with others, put things into languages that they can understand and, you know, work networks. Um, Catherine Siena learned how to read through a female community, so it was outside of formalized education. And I see a lot of similarities with tool sharing and knowledge sharing in the developer community today. So people put things online, like you could learn how to code online for free, like yeah. if you have the drive anyway. And, you know, just having more people be participants in in those conversations um, developing communities that's where I see the thread and that's what I think is important it's fascinating the way you framed it now did you always think of yourself as becoming a professor that you would have an academic career yeah so when I committed to graduate school that is what I wanted to do 
but I did not have super a lot of exposure to other careers. And I think that seeing the work that was being done by the Futures Initiative and seeing how people were finding other career paths, you know, lots of brilliant academics in different contexts, that gave me more texture on like the variety of opportunities. Mm-hmm. I still think that there are like certain spaces that professors have access to that maybe other folks do not have access to. So that's something that I'm continuing to reflect on. Was there any particular turning point or moment that made you shift your perspective to look at these outside opportunities? I think just by being in this career path for a long time and seeing where people end up, the Futures Initiative and the Office of Career Planning and Professional Development, those have both been invaluable resources. Mm-hmm. And I think the Graduate Center is a real leader in surfacing different opportunities and different futures. You know, as I mentioned, like Kathy Davison, I believe that people who have done radical mentorship of their students has been like really empowering to me personally and radical <laughs> mentoring it's an interesting yeah phrase. I think it's just people that instead of like waiting for somebody to come to them like they're really being proactive with like providing time and resources so my dissertation advisor Claire Carroll and comparative literature she's has done a lot to understand like different career paths even though like she has a very successful academic career so it's really interesting to talk to people like her Kathy Davidson uh, Katina Rogers and uh, Lauren Melendez of the Futures Initiative like all of these people that really like foster and like put their money where their mouth is like in terms of like mentoring and structuring mentoring in and empowering graduate students rather than like it's not unidirectional what they do they want uh graduate students to rise to you know the work that is meaningful to them Mm -hmm. and to be participants and producers of that work you were abd and then you in the meantime had gotten this job with digital ocean and that was developing tutorials Mm -hmm. and so was that an easy transition coming from a phd background I think there's definitely like a context shift there. I think that coming from a humanities background in particular, there's not a lot of recognition of all of the skills that humanities PhDs have that could translate well to industry. And I think that the more I spend time in industry and like interviewing with other organizations, like I really kind of understood the value of what a humanities PhD provides. So research, there is nobody who is a better researcher than a PhD, right? Like they, they know how to research. Critical thinking and analysis, when you could do it at such a high level, like at the level of a PhD, it's a very valuable skill to have in industry. Teaching and being able to communicate expert level knowledge to non-experts, like having the on the ground kind of knowing what it's like in a classroom, like adopting a beginner's mindset, having empathy for people who are learning something for the first time and being able to distill that knowledge is really valuable. And it's not just in like training or teaching or education kinds of roles, like that's something that's valuable in all kinds of different roles. So it wasn't too much of a learning curve for you in the technical writing role? I think that there certainly were a lot of things that I used to learn, but just having the exposure was how I was able to learn that. I think I was fortunate enough to have a really great team 
because they were also very good at teaching, they were very good at mentoring me as well. And did you know the technology already or was that something you could learn with your team? So the Python, I did know, but because we did a peer review process on the team, I learned a lot about other technologies, which was really good for me because I would technically test other people's tutorials. I was going to servers. That was like a different kind of learning. Well, you're learning by yeah. user testing the mm-hmm. tutorials. Yes. In some ways, I was a really good audience because that's in many cases what the reader would be doing for the first time. What was a typical day like in that in that office and workspace, tech world? So in the beginning, a lot of what I was doing was creating the strategy and the curriculum for the Python tutorials. I was researching best practices because I don't want to share bad practices to beginners. I did the tech that I want to write about, so I would create like little programs and little programs in the beginning, bigger programs later on, depending on whether it was more reference-based or project-based, so conceiving of what readers wanted and where there were pain points for developers to situate what we were offering Mm. to them that would speak to them. A lot of this work was informed by my humanities and pedagogy training. As I mentioned, the team did a peer review process, so if somebody else was writing the tutorial, I would do the tech test and give writing feedback. If it was my tutorial, I would get that by somebody else Mm -hmm. and I was involved in the hiring process and other high-level initiatives and what was also very rewarding and I think is something that's it seems pretty common in tech, but giving back to the community and participating in meetups, um, giving yeah. workshops for colleges, for high schools, different organizations like Women Who Code and things like that. So that was really great. And then when I transitioned to a manager, there was a shift in that work. So there was more time spent on coaching and developing the team, uh, more strategizing and facilitating initiatives and cross-functional work. And when you're working at a growing organization, there's a lot of time spent on hiring. I would imagine. Was there a lot of independence or was it quite structured in terms of what you got to work on and write tutorials for? There was a lot of independence. I think because there is a lot of work done on hiring really great people, people that have like DevOps engineering backgrounds and people who are like really on the pulse of the developer community there's a lot of self-direction available within the team but also like supporting you know larger organizational goals like that's something that the team wants to do too and what did you enjoy most everything was rewarding in their own way i think working with the team and just working with really smart people and being able to be exposed to tech as it's being developed like continuous innovation continuous learning and being able to just be part of that movement. And it's a way to write in a way that's more social and collaborative because Mm -hmm. it's inherently team-based, the context you're talking about. And it sounds like you had a lot of preparation for this work, be it you know, through your training in pedagogy and the Futures Initiative at the GC and that kind of critical thinking skills, as well as the tech skills. Were there things that you wish you'd learned while you were at the GC that would have helped you? The thing that I would have liked to keep in mind is that people's goals change and like what they are interested in are going to change over time and I think giving yourself the accommodation to have these kinds of changing thoughts and changing interests is something to keep in mind like I think when you're in graduate school it's 
easy to get like a kind of tunnel vision, but giving yourself the time to reflect and giving yourself permission to engage with what your interests are, I think is really important and something that if I were able to talk to my past self, maybe that would be what I would advise. Of course, to finish the PhD and the dissertation, you have to get that tunnel vision to some extent, but to open it up and then to reconsider things at different stages can be productive. Were there any particular outside resources that were helpful to you in the career transition or mentors? Having that researcher background was helpful in thinking about possible career futures because, you know, I was able to think about it as like a research project. I did close reading of job advertisements to kind of have a sense of what was available in the field. I think there are a lot of resources As I mentioned, the developer community provides a lot of resources to other folks if it's a matter of learning new technology. You know, the New York Public Library has a really great offering of different kinds of tools that could help. They provide lynda.com subscriptions. And some of those things you could think about for different professional features, even for academic features. Mm -hmm. Casey Holman, who is now with the Humanities Alliance, she provided a workshop while she was still with Haystack on thinking about CVs and resumes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And that was within the Futures Initiative, like fellowship cohort. But Mm -hmm. thinking about those two things at the same time and how those two documents can speak to each other, I think was really useful because they're different documents but trying to capture some of what you have in your CV into your resume and like kind of quantifying it and teasing it out that you're being evaluated by a team of stakeholders with your Mm. dissertation, um, thinking about all of the public speaking that you do in conferences, thinking about things in the language of different careers. So in tech, they have tech jargon, um, you know, in finance, like whatever it is, like just showing the granularity, showing that you are mirroring the language and job posts, but capturing Mm. all of your experience. That's such great advice, learning the language of the field you're targeting or looking at and then incorporating that into your own material. Technical writing, I think, is kind of an ambiguous term, and I I learned while hiring technical writers that it's not necessarily clear unless you like tease out what kind of technical writing this is. It could mean that somebody has a lot of experience across different kinds of like scientific writing, bio or pharmaceutical writing, automotive writing, engineering. I think that there's just so many different flavors of technical writing. So if that's something that people are interested in, they should see if there is like a focus they want to have or if it's like the genre of technical writing writ large is what they're interested in pursuing. Mm. If someone wanted to apply to technical writing in tech itself, are there other skills they should have in addition to obviously critical thinking and writing skills, but they should probably know some coding. It depends because some technical writing is more product documentation and that's more like explicative Mm. kind of writing, like explaining what a product does. And in those cases, usually writers will work with software engineers or the product managers and think through like what documentation will be useful to users. Mm. Things that are more on like the developer education side I think if it's computer science related, they would need to have some kind of computer science background. Makes sense. And so for for the users, that could be anything like help pages, for instance. Yeah, it could be it could be explaining like graphical user interfaces. Um, it could be API documentation which would be more technical. In different companies and organizations, technical writers sit in different 
parts of the company and they will collaborate with different folks. It kind of depends on the role and, you know, what somebody's interests are, how they could kind of negotiate where to go. Now you're in a postdoc in MIT and that's an interesting journey back into the academic side. And what was your drive there to enter a postdoc? So I continued to participate in academic work, and I was only like a year gap really between defending and starting the postdoc. But I continued to write, to publish, to do conferences. So there wasn't a long time of being unaffiliated. But the thing that I like a lot about academia is how rigorous the research is and the teaching within a classroom context. Mm -hmm. So the research in academia is special and it's something that I haven't seen elsewhere. Being able to go into the archives, like Mm -hmm. handling manuscripts and early printed books, like there's something like magical about that. Mm -hmm. And doing the work that I was doing to try to recover marginalized voices, I think is very meaningful and it's something that I think is within the academic confines. Teaching outside of academia, so doing things like workshops, doing things like providing resources for developers, there's certainly like a corollary and in some ways it's like a larger reach. The Python book has been downloaded over 70,000 times, which is like I can never teach that many people in a classroom. Pretty cool. But it's still not the same as seeing like that spark when you're in the classroom and helping students become knowledge producers and taking ownership of their education. It's something that's a little different and that's the kind of thing that I like about that kind of like university teaching. Ideally, would you like to have an academic career? I have a lot of curiosities. I'm not sure like, you know, which direction to go. I don't really want to close any doors, but continue to develop skills across domains and keep learning. That's a very inspiring message. And that's something that students might not think is possible. They might think, well, I have to pick one or the other. I think academia has an opportunity to think about interdisciplinary dialogue and how disciplines communicate with each other because thinking through people with different perspectives, um, seeing different trajectories, I think could be really beneficial in terms of like the dialogue that the universities have with society and culture at large. I think that there is an opportunity for more of a permeable future there. Looking back over your graduate school trajectory and training from the other side of all that, what do you wish you knew when you were starting out? Well, I think for humanities, PhDs in particular, like thinking about what they want out of an academic career, if that's what they want, or what they want out of a non-academic career, those are important things to reflect on. There's been like a lot of changes, I think, in humanities trajectories and where things like digital humanities sit, where digital pedagogy sits within the university. So somebody who has those interdisciplinary interests should be thinking about what they want their career to look like in some respect. Postdocs in the humanities are very varied from what I understand from my colleagues. Uh, They don't have as long of a history as the sciences have, so there's a lot of 
difference between them. So it's really important for humanities folks to take the time to really interview programs, to really interview companies if that's where they want to go, and to think about their career as not something that is like coming to them, but something that they have to come for and something that they are a participant in. So interviewing the interviewer, I think, is something that's important to keep in mind. Like it's not a one-way street. Uh, mm. People need to think about like, is this a step in the direction they want to go? Mm. Things like that. Such a great perspective, and I think a very empowering shift because students can fall into that mold of wanting to be chosen by the model of what they think their future mm-hmm. should be, versus creating their own narrative and taking that time to assess their motivations, as you said, what they want to get out of it. We talk a lot about branding yourself or creating your own narrative, and I think that all ties in nicely. Yeah, I think that that's really important. Having a career narrative going into interviews, it's a strong position to have that in your kind of back pocket going into interviews and demonstrating how your experience can be leveraged into your future work, whether that is in academia, whether that's in industry, nonprofit, libraries, uh, whatever the case may be, and thinking about that in two directions. So something that I have thought about with applying to postdocs from like having a technical background was how to make the technical experience, how to make that legible to an academic audience and also doing it the other way, how to make the academic experience legible to an industry audience. Uh, So being able to kind of do it front and back yeah, I think it's important, especially if you have like a lot of curiosities and want to not close any doors. Can you tell me a bit about what a typical day is like in the postdoc? Yeah, postdocs in the humanities, I think, are really varied. Um, speaking to my experience, MIT's digital humanities program is relatively new, so it's very much a startup kind of culture, which is really interesting. Uh, we got beanbags in for the undergrads, so it's really fun. A lot of the work that I've been doing so far has been with undergraduate computer science students, mm-hmm. and we are developing software in Python that deals with humanities questions and humanities research. The first project that we did was called the Gender Novels Project, and it's uh, all Python code. It looks at the long 19th century uh, English language novels and sees how gender is portrayed and depicted in these novels. So, you know, what verbs are associated with female characters, which ones are associated with male characters. Does it matter if it's a male author or a female author writing the text? And does that change over time? So in many ways, this is like a data science adjacent kind of project. And all of the code is open source. It's all available online. Other humanities folks can use this to look at, you know, the 16th century or something else or Mm. to modify things. So yeah, that's our first project. And then the second project is a digital archive of the MIT Computation Center from 1950 to 1962. So basically making archives that are on-site at MIT available to the larger public, lets historians have access to the work Hmm. and, you know, making resource, you know, digital archives, I think. Most um, scholars understand (laughs) how those are important. So the work that I have done within these projects is helping the undergraduate students doing teaching within the lab for them to learn some of those computer science skills that they're maybe not learning in 
an algorithmic mm. kind of course. So thinking about collaborative coding, working mm. with others, thinking about uh, Git and version control, thinking yeah. about accessibility and how to create an accessible website. Also doing like code reviews, uh, doing coaching. We're going to have a speaker series later on. And also, you know, working on my own research projects mm. and working on the research projects of the lab. That's quite cool. The postdoc, that's a perfect way to tackle those questions you raised earlier about the bigger picture of building bridges between academia, digital, and also the public, and how you create new communities around knowledge. You get to be a bit of a unicorn in either community, whether it's comp lit or tech. Yes. Something else that's interesting about tech is that going into that space with an academic background is there's opportunity, I think, to make some of those changes that you want to see. So I was able to participate on the diversity and inclusion committee. I was able to work on hiring processes that were inclusive. And something that was interesting is one of the students that I taught in computer science, I was able, since I continued to connect with him on LinkedIn and things like mm -hmm. that, I was able to help him eventually get a job as an engineer at DigitalOcean. I think that's something awesome. that's really different from kind of an academic experience. Mm. And that's quite cool. It's an interesting way to make change from the inside. Yeah, I mean, I think that it's important for the organization to have the values that you have that like because because they did have a diversity and inclusion committee before I joined, but I was able to participate. So that's definitely something to think about when looking for a job. That's a wrap for this episode of Alumni Allowed. I want to thank Lisa for coming on the show to share her experiences at DigitalOcean, MIT, and what it's like to advocate for technical literacy across society. Remember to stay tuned for more episodes of Alumni Allowed published every two weeks during the fall and spring semesters. Subscribe on iTunes and you'll automatically be notified of new episodes. Also, check out our Facebook, Twitter, and career planning website at cuny.is slash career plan for more updates from our office or to make appointments with our career counselors. Thanks for listening and see you next time.